live from Melbourne, Peter Credlin. Good evening and welcome to the show. It's a very busy Tuesday. Lots to get through. Let's see what's coming up tonight on Credlin. Religious knives banned in New South Wales schools following an alleged stabbing. Tonight I'll speak with a member of the Sikh community about why he thinks knives should be allowed. I'll share my thoughts on that a bit later in the show as well. Plus, a business owner slamming the proposed second injecting room in Melbourne. He joins me live this evening and I'll tell you what, he is not holding back. And all the top news stories from around the country, as you'd expect, including the vaccine rollout. Prime Minister Scott Morrison conceding the government needs to step up the pace for disability care. Now we've got to, we've got to up, step up uh, the performance there. There's no doubt about that. And I'm working with our health officials to achieve that. But first, lost as you'd expect in all the noise about last week's budget spendathon and the ongoing debate about a COVID roadmap to reopening, have been some pretty seismic developments for how we see ourselves as Australians. You see, so much Indigenous policy is not about how to help Aboriginal people better, it's about how we see ourselves as Australians, or told to see ourselves. Are we a country where everyone gets a fair go, especially if they're prepared to have a go, to borrow the Prime Minister's phrase, or are we a country that is fundamentally racist? Some want us to believe because our very foundation involved an unjust dispossession of the original inhabitants. On the weekend, the acting Premier of Victoria, where else, announced Australia's first truth-telling commission into the wrongs, he says, committed against Aboriginal people after white settlement in Victoria. On the back of the treaty, the Victorian government is also working to push through it's another way for those who are supposed to be our leaders to seek to divide. Into this process, there will no doubt be a litany of claims. It's based on the South African model, its Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was set up in the aftermath of the apartheid era coming to an end. Then, in South Africa, it was about crimes and atrocities committed within living memory, measured in months and years. Here in Victoria, what's expected are claims going back to the 17 and 1800s. And with a $58 million budget, that's right, $58 million, it's part of a well-thought-out political strategy to soften us up for a so-called treaty with Aboriginal Victorians, as if they're somehow a nation separate from the rest of the country. Again, to divide Victorians, not unite them. Nothing like the once laudable aim of reconciliation. Indeed, unlike the South African model, there's no reconciliation word in the Daniel Andrews Commission. They don't just think it's left-wing Labor governments like Victoria's that are going down this path. A fortnight ago, the South Australian Liberal government announced it was establishing an Indigenous voice to the state parliament, eventually to be elected in what's a transparent attempt to frog-march the federal Liberal government into doing the same thing. Now, I don't support a separate voice to the parliament, any way, shape or form. I don't support it. Because for too long, we have fought to open up our Western democracies to electing our representatives by a vote that isn't qualified or restricted by whether you're a man or not, or, or a landowner or not, which is, of course, how it once was. So why in 2021 would we want to create two classes of voter in this country where one group of Australians, by virtue of their race alone, effectively get two votes? One for the voice to Parliament and then a second vote, along with the rest of us, for the Parliament itself. As it seems, we're all equal in the coming Australia, but in George Orwell's phrase, some are more equal than others. Meanwhile, Amidst all this activist talk of treaties and voices and white guilt for the alleged atrocities of a century ago or more, Aboriginal people continue to suffer in ways that no Australian should and in ways that the mainstream media never wants to discuss. The latest figures out today from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare show that nearly one in six Indigenous children accessed child protection services last year. That's eight times, eight times the rate for non-Indigenous children. 
So what's more important? Raking over the coals of history, several generations removed from today, that we can do nothing to change other than perhaps taxpayer compensation or more division in a country growing more divided by the day or tackling the dysfunction that exists right now, right now in so many Indigenous communities. It's as everything, doesn't it, that so many Indigenous leaders, and to be fair, virtue-signalling politicians of all ancestries, would rather dwell on the past that they can't change rather than the present and the future that they can and should change. But as courageous Indigenous leaders like Jacinta Price keep pointing out, and I quote, as long as Aboriginal leaders insist without clear evidence that it's all caused by racism and colonisation, we cannot begin to reduce homicide, violence and sexual abuse. By all means, let's have these truth-telling commissions provided, provided they're prepared to start with today's truth, the truth that black families will be safe when kids go to school and adults go to work and the ordinary law of the land is enforced, as a former Prime Minister once said. The truth, too, that black women will be safe when black men stop hitting them. For as Price has pointed out, out of the nearly 1,000 Indigenous people lost to homicide over the past 20 years, more than three quarters were killed by Indigenous perpetrators and nearly 70% were classified domestic homicides. That truth too needs to be told. If we're really to make the difference we must make for the women and children in particular of our first Australians. All that news from Canberra. Let's head there now for tonight's political headlines. Border bans and SNAP restrictions could be a thing of the past under the Prime Minister's roadmap for a fully vaccinated Australia. Scott Morrison standing firm in saying international borders won't be open before it's safe. As business groups and doctors push for a roadmap to reopening, the PM hinting vaccinations could change the COVID calculus domestically. I think the, 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 the next most achievable step, because Australia, with our international borders up, means that vaccinated Australians would be in a much lower risk position um, when restrictions were to kick in on, on you know, Australians going on public transport or going to theatres or going to the footy. But the proposal will need the support of the states, despite some premiers remaining reluctant. You can't talk about easing restrictions, whether it's home quarantine, uh, whether it's the settings in terms of our borders and flights coming in. Um, you can't talk about those changes until we see an improvement in the Commonwealth's vaccine rollout and alternative quarantine settings beyond hotel quarantine. I think they're the sort of issues that need to be discussed at National Cabinet and there's been no paper sent around on that at the moment. The Virgin boss hitting some turbulence after controversial comments about the need to live with COVID. Jane Herdlicker, the boss of the latest business, to make the case for a more ambitious time frame on opening international borders, telling a business function in Brisbane, quote, we have to learn to live with this. Some people may die, but it will be way smaller than with the flu. Virgin's PR team in full flight, insisting the safety of guests is always the number one priority. But it didn't stop criticism from the Prime Minister. You know, I regret that those comments were somewhat insensitive. Somewhat insensitive, and I would encourage people. You know, 910 Australians have lost their lives. Every single one of those lives was a terrible tragedy. That's not a view shared, though, by some on the coalition backbench. Eventually, when we open up, eventually, even if we ease some restrictions, uh, there will be the unfortunate situation that, uh, that some people, uh, even with the vaccine, because it's not 100%, some people might get symptoms and, and ultimately die, just as they do from the flu. And the Prime Minister has pledged to step up the pace of the vaccine rollout for residents in disability care. It comes after revelations fewer than 1,000 people in that cohort have been vaccinated. That's despite the fact they're included in phase 1A of the jab. People with disabilities were supposed to be at the front of the queue. And what's clear is that they're not getting the support that they need. We've got to up, step up uh, the performance there. There's no doubt about that. And I'm working with our health officials to achieve that. Trudy McIntosh, Sky News, Canberra. 
Well, 60% of Australians, including 71% of coalition supporters, have backed Josh Frydenberg's cash splash budget till a news poll additional stimulus spending is more important than reducing debt. More on this and the other big stories today across the country. I'm joined from Sydney by senior writer at the Australian newspaper, one of your favourites, Troy Brabston. Troy, the same news poll shows 52% of voters trust the Morrison government's ability to guide this economic recovery compared to 33% only for Anthony Albanese. We'll get to your analysis about some of these structural problems you've written about brilliantly over the weekend regarding Labor. Just on the budget, how does Albanese play this? Well, Peter, it's uh, pretty extraordinary. I mean, this is a big vote of confidence for the government's not only budget, but also their general handling, I think, of the pandemic and the broader economic response um, over the past year or so. Uh, where Labor goes from here is is difficult for them to work out, I guess, because uh, the coalition has in many ways stepped into their terrain with big spending on social policy initiatives such as mental health and disability and, um, and childcare and other educational initiatives. So it's very difficult to see where Labor goes here. I mean, I actually think Labor should have should have uh, seized the mantle of fiscal responsibility and argued that the economy was just roaring away and there was a need to withdraw the stimulus from the economy sooner um, and uh, return the budget back to surplus sooner. But Labor hasn't done that. In fact, they're probably likely to put up taxes um, and increase spending. So uh, Labor, I think, is all at sea in terms of their response. Uh, they're being caught flat-footed uh, and don't know where to go. And voters in that poll today, in the news poll, in the Australian, Peter, shows mm. that uh, voters do not think uh, that Labor could handle uh, the response to the pandemic better or indeed deliver a better budget. Well, let's go to these structural issues that you wrote about on the weekend. You say... Labor's sleepwalking to defeat under Anthony Albanese. And I'll quote you here. The party, you say, is led by a lackluster leader with a B-grade front bench, unsure of what it stands for and who it represents and plagued by structural defects. I'll ask you about the cultural challenge of the centre right here, here and overseas in just a minute. But this critique of Albanese in the front bench. So if not Albo, who? Will they move on him? And is there any A-grade talent on the front bench? Well, Peter, I think there was a lot of chatter within Labor earlier in the year about whether Anthony Albanese was the best leader or not uh, to take them to the next election. I think the party has generally resolved uh, that there won't be a move on the leadership before the election. Um, but Anthony Albanese has led Labor into a cul-de-sac since the last election. Uh, he's a small target, no vision, uh, no agenda politician. Uh, he hasn't been able to differentiate himself against the government. Uh, he's, he's unpopular, meaning that more people think uh, they disagree with the job that he's doing rather than approve. Uh, he's behind uh, Scott Morrison as preferred Prime Minister by a margin of two to one. Uh, some polls even show three to one. Uh, so he's, he's struggling to develop uh, an, a, a Labor agenda. I don't think the party understands who it should represent anymore. I think it's been losing voters uh, to the on the left, to the Greens, and on the right, to the Coalition and parties like One Nation. Uh, so it's got this structural identity crisis, um, but it's led by a leader who doesn't know what he believes in, who he represents, and just doesn't have the cut-through. So who else is there to lead Labor? I don't think there's going to be a change before the election, but there's plenty of them who will put their hand up after the election. Tanya Plevisek, I've long thought, is the favourite, uh, but there's others like Jim mm -hmm. Chalmers and Chris Bowen who want to have a crack as well. All right, let, let's go to the cultural issues because it's not just uh, Labor in Australia, although I have to say Albo's been in the parliament for 25 years. If you can't create a political personality in 25 years and cut through, you're never going to cut through. But these are issues faced by the centre-left around the country. There was an essay in the New Statesman by uh, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He says parties like his are facing extinction across the West because they've embraced the woke and, and he says a, a new fashion social and cultural message around extreme identity and anti-police politics is voter repellent and we saw a YouGov poll in the UK just in the last couple of days that says the Conservatives are out ahead with a 27 point lead over Labor amongst working class voters. I mean that's unheard of. What do you, what do you make of the Blair critique and this woke trap uh, that's now playing out to, in, in Australia as well? 
Peter, I think Tony Blair's essay is spot on. Um, and when I interviewed Tony Blair a few years ago, he said the same argument applies to the Australian Labor Party. His advice to Bill Shorten ahead of the last election two years ago this week was for the party to move back to the centre ground of politics. But we know through the Australian election survey run by the ANU uh, that the Labor Party mm. is seen by voters as less and less centrist at every election since 2001, meaning that it's been skewing to the left. And so what they've done there is they've left their constituency open for the coalition parties and other parties on the right uh, to take. And so you now have this incredible statistic, Peter, where, you know, 30 years ago, people with a university degree overwhelmingly voted for the coalition. Now they overwhelmingly vote Labor. And people without a degree, so usually a trade qualification, voted Labor. They now mostly vote coalition. But on this broader issue about culture, it's really important, Peter. I don't think the Labor Party understands this. You know, on issues like identity, on culture, on religion, on gender... A lot of working-class and middle-class aspirational voters feel a little bit challenged, a little bit threatened by some of these issues, and they don't like the elitist, finger-wagging, condescending approach by parties like the Labor Party and the Greens. And so they're alienating voters who used to vote for them uh, because they seem to be obsessed about these cultural issues that are not, frankly, more important than the economy, national security, education or health. I want to go to another issue. We, we have both, you and I, spent time on the ministerial carpet working in political offices. So I picked this up. I'm sure you've picked it up as well. The report today that Peter Dutton has moved to seal off his ministerial office from being overloaded with defence bureaucrats. His previous... Uh, his, his predecessor, Linda Reynolds, she had, what, 12 or something uh, public servants who take leave to work in her office. And that's a distortion, in my view, away from the politics of ministerial staff who are supposed to be a bit of a check and balance against what's coming up uh, from the departments. Now, Dutton's clearly decided uh, he wants some reform in defence, particularly the procurement piece, and he's not going to have his office full of bureaucrats who will just, you know, basically rubber stamp what's coming up uh, from the generals and others. He wants some contestability. That's my read of it. What's your take? Yeah, Peter, uh, d departments often have agendas in the bottom drawer that they bring out and try to convince every minister to adopt. Uh, the point of political staff is to second-guess that departmental advice and also to put a political uh, sheen over the advice going to the minister. I think the number one thing for a minister is they've got to be able to trust their staff. They've got to be able to have staff that they believe in, um, that they can rely on. And so Peter Dutton is perfectly entitled uh, to construct the kind of office that he wants. I think it's a signal, though, that he doesn't want to be captive uh, to his department. So uh, I think that's an important step as well. But, you know, it's got to be a balance. You've got to be able to rely on your department, uh, take advice from them, but not be ruled by them and be able to have your personal staff that you can trust to give you that kind of political overlay. So I think it's a balance but it shows that the minister's not going to be run by his department uh, and he's going to be uh, mm. second-guessing some of the advice that comes his way. And I think, I think that's the role of a ministerial office. I have to say, I worked for a defence minister in the Howard years. I think it's been a long time since defence has had some tough-minded ministers. That is a good thing in particular, given where we are with China, but the budgets they control as well. Troy Branson, great analysis. Thanks for being on the show tonight. Thanks very much, Peter. All right. Let's move to the issue in New South Wales. The government has moved to ban religious knives at public schools after a 14-year-old boy was allegedly stabbed by a fellow student using a ceremonial dagger at Gleamwood High in Sydney's northwest. Now, the move sparked an uproar in the Sikh community, with one charity, Turbans for Australia, seeking legal advice as to whether the ban amounts to racial discrimination. For more on this, I'm joined from Sydney by the founder of Turbans for Australia, Mr Amar Singh. Amar, I, I want to say from the outset, thank you for your time, to my audience, that, that my experience with the Sikh community in Australia to date has been about recognising some of the very significant charity work you do. I think it's a, a terrific community in Australia. We're lucky to have the Sikhs. Your own charity, Turbans for Australia, we've spoken before, thousands of dollars groceries and hay to farmers doing it tough and people struggling through COVID. However, tonight I want to discuss this incident in Sydney school and the ban on the ceremonial daggers carried by Sikhs, the dagger called the Kerpan. Now, I have to say I support the ban. I don't believe knives 
should have any place in a school regardless of uh, religious arguments or not. You say the Kirpan is incredibly important to the Sikh community. Explain to my viewers why. Well, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. Uh, the issue here is not the, just the Kirpan. The issue here is the underlying bullying and racism at the school. And particularly in this case as well and many others, parents have pulled their kids out of the school due to the fear of racism and lack of action from the school. And that is what's caused this whole scenario to come about. And that's a big concern. A religious Kirpan burned by Sikhs has been burned for probably three to four decades in Australia. We've had one crime and all of a sudden it's, it's come to a ban. I was surprised, I have to say, Amar, that, that the knives were allowed in the school, religious knives or not. Uh, I think it's, uh, it was a surprise to a lot of parents and uh, commentators like me looking at this issue. Um, of course, it all happened a couple of weeks ago and the Minister was very strong on Ben Fordham's 2GB radio program this morning. Let's have a listen. We'll be looking at what we need to do in terms of that, uh, that act that exists, which you spoke about on your program yesterday and that exemption that's in place. Um, because I think you're right and the Premier's right, this isn't in line with community expectations. Um, so we will be working to make that legislative change. But in the interim, I've also asked the Department to send advice out to our schools today, updating our policy to say that knives um, for religious purposes will be banned in government schools. Do you understand the concerns people have about safety? Yeah, well, I have a question for the Minister. I did meet her yesterday online uh, before they announced the ban and a director from the Department of Education. What took the ban to come about 10 days or so from the actual original incident? Shouldn't the ban have come this next day? So what was the government doing? I think they've just reacted, overreacted to the media and gone, oh my God, we need to do something now and here's the ban, served on a platter. I mean, not everything can be answered by a ban. If we look at the, the flights, there's a ban. If we look at a simple religious thing, it's a ban. One incident and we've shut, you know, a religious a community down. Yeah, well, we're talking about young people. We're talking about young people who may or may not have great judgment uh, in their teenage years. And, uh, you know, if there are racially motivated attacks in the school, the knife or a knife just adds another element to that. I, I'm very sympathetic to where the government's coming on this. Uh, what's the situation with adults and the Kirpan? I mean, can you take a, a Kirpan on an aircraft through, through the scanners, for instance? Well, we're sympathetic with both the families of these young, young men gone through this, you know, shocking incident. Uh, in India, we are allowed to mm. take a care plan on, on an aircraft, but overseas, in other countries, we are not. Um, I'm wearing one right now, which is, you know, sort of size of my palm. Um, and I actually have a smaller one here today. This is the sleek that goes around the shoulder, and this is a sort of a small care plan a person would wear of a young age, and you can see it's probably a couple of inches long. I do recognise our community needs to work on this issue and come to an, a middle sort of agreement with the government and the department about this. So if you, if you give us the chance to work out with the religious leaders what needs to be done, it can be done. And it's not like from the first incident that happened 10 or 15 days ago, there's been numerous attacks since then and we need to bring in the ban now to curb, curb that mm. attacks. You know, we should have just listened to the community and said, look, can we work on this, which we are. So we are working with the, with the department, but it just feels like they're just trying to bottleneck us and say, look, well, this is what it is, like it or not. Uh, look, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never heard of an incident like this before. This would appear uh, to be the first incident and uh, we've had sex in Australia for many, many years. Overseas, there are kerpans that are taken by some students to schools in countries like the United Kingdom where the, where the weapon can't be drawn, that it's somehow uh, enclosed. Is that a compromise in Australia? Are you aware of that? Uh, well, I wasn't aware of that, but we are looking at similar situations here as well uh, for kids. But the kids uh, are being told by parents and religious leaders, you know, the importance of the kirpan. And for any Sikh, as a baptised Sikh, you, you wear a kirpan, you know the utmost respect for that and, and why you're wearing it. So it's not like it's, it's a sort of a secret weapon. Um, and that's not how we mm -hmm. take it. So we are looking at safety measures in place so the school age kids can actually wear it. Are you having a conversation with the government? Is there been consultation uh, with the minister that you have a seat at the table and these things can be discussed openly? 
Well, we had a seat at the table. It was more to hear the decision. It wasn't consultation. Uh, and now let, we are hoping for that. Uh, I think there's another meeting coming up this week uh, about it. So we are not, you know, no, we're asking to let, let the kids have a, you know, one way or the other. The whole issue is the bullying and racism. So if the kid had picked up a pencil or a brick from the school or something from his industrial class, I went to high school here. We used to do woodwork and we had, you know, big, big sharp tools available. So what if somebody had attacked another student with those? We're not going to ban everything. The point is we need to curb the mm -hmm. racism and bullying at schools, which starts at a very young age, and they are young people. I don't disagree with you there on that point at all. Amar Singh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it coming on to talk about this issue. I think it's important that there is a open discussion and plenty of consultation. We'll stay across it with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Sky News. All right. Making news today, the International Energy Agency has declared no new coal mines, oil fields or gas projects should be open if the world is to reach net zero emissions by 2050. In a new report, the IEA calls on the industrial and energy sectors to reduce their emissions based on 2020 levels by a whopping 40% over the next nine years, so by 2030. In other words, a slow-motion death sentence for Australian industry. The IEA's demands come a day after another report revealed the importance of the resources sector to Australia's budget bottom line. According to Deloitte Access Economics, over the decade between 2010 and 2020, the minerals sector contributed $238 billion in taxes and royalties to the Commonwealth and state governments. Now, that's a staggering amount of money. Look at that debt last week. We need something to pay it off. And, of course, that sort of revenue pays for schools and hospitals and roads that we all use, and the billions too, in taxpayer subsidies handed to the renewables industry. Coming up after the break, a business owner slams the proposed second injecting room for Melbourne. Don't go anywhere. That's next. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back here watching Credlin. Well, I mentioned this last night. The Andrews government set to open Victoria's second injecting room in the heart of Melbourne's CBD. According to reports, the facility will be housed in a building opposite Flinders Street Station, just a stone's throw from Melbourne Aquarium, Fed Square and, of course, Crown Casino. Business owners already smashed by lockdowns and border closures. Well, they're up in arms over the plan. One of them, Tony Doherty, owns Doherty's gym, located just metres away from the proposed site. He joins me now from Melbourne. Uh, Tony, thank you for your time. We last spoke at the height of the pandemic when your business was struggling thanks to that 111-odd day lockdown. Now you're dealing with this. How much consultation have you had? And the Herald Sun called me for a comment two days ago, so there was zero consultation. consultation. And it just makes no sense. I don't know how they think this stuff up. I mean, the corner of Elizabeth Street and Flinders Street at the moment looks like Skid Row. No one wants to go there. And I've seen on the footpath urine, blood, faeces, needles, vomit. And this is a regular occurrence there. So to bring something like this into that part of the city and make it even worse, I mean, we're trying to get the city alive again, to turn Melbourne into the world's most livable city again, to attract tourists back, to get businesses open, you know, businesses in that part of the city have been decimated by COVID. There's so many empty shops and restaurants that haven't been able to open again. You know, we don't have the international students. We, we don't have the, the corporates back at work. So to do this is just ludicrous. I mean, I'm going to put a map up for viewers at home who don't live in Melbourne, just so they get a sense of where this is. It's one of the busiest parts of Melbourne, as you say. It's right near where Young and Jackson's is and Flinders Street Station, for those familiar with Melbourne. This is where people take their kids, Tony. I mean, what I would it look, look I, like I, I with an injecting room? I won't take my kids room? to that corner. Well, I won't, as it is, take my kids to that corner because it looks like Skid Row. And the other thing is, 
you know, the only way to get to that part of Melbourne is public transport. So do we want, you know, junkies coming out of an in, injecting clinic, injecting illegal substances, coming out and getting onto the trams and trains with our families? I mean, it's absolutely crazy. So I think that if the government's so obsessed with having a, an injecting room in the city, why do they do it at town hall, you know, at the mayor's office or somewhere like that and see how they like it? Or the, the police guy that's proposed the whole thing. They've got this big new police centre... You know, and we know that injecting rooms attract drug dealers. So why don't they do it down at police headquarters and then they can catch the drug dealers at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it's just a joke, though, because the, the, the whole point is we still have on the books illicit drugs. I mean, these drugs are illicit and we're putting them in the way... I mean, particularly that Flinders Street station, so many young people come there and change trams and trains to go to school right across Melbourne. It's an intersection point for young people. And they'll go to the toilets and there'll be someone in there doing a deal or God knows what else. Um, I, I thought exactly. of you when they announced it. Your, your gym is 24 hours. Now, I have to say, if I was right. going for an early morning walkout... I would be reluctant as a woman to be parking my car at half past five, six o'clock in the morning and be going to your gym and, and coming across not just the addicts, but I think worse for me would be all the dealers and others because that's my experience of, of Richmond. It's a real honeypot effect. That's as much of a concern, isn't it, than anything else? Absolutely. I mean, Victoria Street, Richmond's been decimated. There's so many restaurants there have closed because no one wants to go there because of the drug dealers and drug addicts on the street. And as you said, it's an illegal substance. I mean, Peter, what's next? Are they going to put an ice den next door so the, the meth heads can go and smoke ice next to the heroin addicts shooting up? I mean, condoning that and putting it, as you said, where children and families catch trams and trains and intersect and meet, it's, it's crazy. Not only that, but you've got a whole lot of backpackers' places there that when we do have tourism open again, do you think um, families want to send their sons and daughters from France and Holland and, uh, and Italy and these places to, to have their accommodation next to an injecting centre or a meth den? I mean, this, this government is absolutely crazy to even suggest that the city is a good place for this. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the first one in North Richmond started out as a trial... It was never a trial. It was rapidly increased. It went from heroin to also include ice. I suspect this will be the same, that it will include ice. And, and anyone who's had an experience of ice knows it's a pretty violent drug. I've listened to a lot of uh, talkback radio. I've looked at uh, what's been said online by Melburnians. They are up in arms about this proposal. What have people been saying to you? Well, exactly the same thing. People are up in arms about it. They can't believe that we've like, stooped to this level of stupidity. I mean, I, I just wonder how they think this stuff up and then how they justify it, how they don't consult with the local businesses or the citizens or the people. I mean, I live in the city, and it's disgusting to walk through some parts of it at night or early in the morning, but particularly that intersection near Flinders Street Station and Elizabeth Street. It's, it's, a, it's, it's third world. And what they should be doing is cleaning it up and spending that money maybe on some rehabilitation centres or some emergency, some crisis housing for some of the people that fr frequent there instead of encouraging mm. a drug addict's place in the city where we're trying, like they're talking about making it the entertainment capital again and the, the livable city again. And they come up with this? I mean, enough. Yeah, let's be very clear for people... For, for people at home, this is a shooting gallery. Richmond is a shooting gallery. There's very, very little services to actually get people off drugs, to rehabilitate them away from drugs. It's just a, it's just a honeypot effect and it's a place to use. It's not a place to get off drugs. I've got to go, but what's your message to Daniel Andrews, Tony? Pull your head in, Daniel Andrews. Have a good look at it. And if you want to do this kind of thing, have it next to your house. See how you like it and how your kids feel, you know, having these sort of people on the streets. It's against the law, it's encouraging drug use and it's just putting it in, in the heart of a city that we should be cleaning up and getting open and on its feet again. We've had enough. Business has just been crushed, particularly in the city. And I know so many people that have actually lost their businesses. You know, we've been able to fight through and make it, but this isn't going to make it any easier. No, it's not. Tony Doherty, keep up the fight. Thank you for your time. Come back on here any time. I think this has got a long way to run. Always good to chat. Thanks, Peter. No worries. Thanks for your time.
Let's go to another issue. A new study has found workers are walking on eggshells trying to accurately describe people in minority groups without identifying their colour, race or ethnicity. Research from the University of Sydney and the Diversity Council shows excessive use of acronyms and jargon are making it harder, not easier, for businesses to improve cultural diversity. To discuss this, I'm joined from Sydney by one of the study's authors, researcher at the University of Sydney's Business School Associate Professor Demetria Grutzis. Professor, thank you for your time. You say the language used to describe racial and cultural diversity in workplaces in Australia has become too sanitised. Explain what that means for viewers at home. Um, first of all, thank you for, for your interest in the research and thank you for having me on tonight. Um, the, the language has changed over time and language evolves over time. What we're trying to do is to come up with very accessible language. So we've come up with five standardised measures uh, that, are, that are very much based on the Australian context and for an Australian workforce audience. Uh, in terms of how it's become sanitised over time, uh, we, we tested race-based language, which is very much an American um, approach with our more Australian-focused language, which can be considered to be a little bit sanitised because it doesn't focus on, on colour and race. Uh, it focuses on culture, languages spoken, country of birth um, and... When we tested both of them, we, we were very deliberate in the language and the measures that we came up with so that we could suit an Australian audience. So your report makes the point that in 21st century Australia, Lebanese workers, for example, may speak uh, English, French, Arabic, be practising Christians or not, uh, but the richness of their background isn't properly reflected by just describing them as culturally diverse. Ultimately... I'm paraphrasing you here, but correct me if I'm wrong. This is about celebrating individuals and the individual experience rather than classifying someone as, as broadly just a member of a group. It's it's a bit of both, and that's what our measures actually do. And and it, because they cover a broad range, they don't just cover a, a broad demographic characteristic such as country of birth, but they also cover um, cu cultural background, which is how someone identifies, um, how someone sees themselves, and how others see them. And we're very clear about using these measures, um, these three measures together as, as a core group so that we can capture both the group characteristics, which you're so clear on mentioning, and also that individual characteristic, which we think is really important because it provides us with a more complex understanding of what cultural diversity actually is. Right, I know my viewers, uh, some will be sceptical about concepts like cultural diversity, uh, particularly for communities that have been here for multiple generations. I'm interested in what your research tells you. When it comes to productivity and mm. efficacy and efficiencies of, of workplaces, is or why is cultural diversity a good thing? It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Here we are with a, a fantastic opportunity to understand what our workforce looks like in terms of its cultural diversity. I think, I think your point about um, generations being here, uh, th this is what sparked the research. I've been doing this research with Dr Jane O'Leary from Diversity Council Australia for over, than a, uh, over a decade now. And whenever I've gone out to talk to people about this, I, I remember one woman putting up her hand and saying, I've been here for six generations, but I look like this and I'm constantly asked where I'm from. So to capture that diversity and to untap that diversity, we think that we need to start measuring it and reporting on it. And then it's only that way that we can start capitalising on it. So I think you capture exactly what we're trying to do. The multicultural market is worth $75 billion annually. Um, we have organisations that are implementing policies targeting cultural diversity, which are pretty much stabbing in the dark because we don't know what our workforce looks like. So we think it's a really important way to start capitalising on um, your human capital and the cultural diversity and mm -hmm. cultural capabilities of that human capital. All right. I know that uh, our language spread in Australia is very well regarded overseas for translation mm -hmm. services and many other things. So uh, I'll be interested in the final report. Associate Professor Demetria 
Demetria Grudsis. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Coming up after the break, Joel Fitzgibbon, Campbell Newman, head to head on the big stories of the day. Don't go anywhere. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Well, pressure's mounting on the Morrison government to speed up the rollout of its COVID vaccines in the disability care sector after it was revealed less than 5% of residents have been vaccinated. As Health Minister Greg Hunt confirmed yesterday, just 99 only residents had received the jab. A special hearing of the Disability Royal Commission heard the vaccine rollout to disabled Australians has been an abject failure. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by my Tuesday panel for from Brisbane, former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman, and from Cessnock, beautiful Cessnock in New South Wales, one of Labor's most popular backbenchers, should be on the front bench, Joel Fitzgibbon. All right, Joel, we've dropped the renegade. We're just going to call you popular because you are. Let's go to you first on this issue. Three months into this rollout, those statistics on uh, people with a disability, aged care recipients and others, pretty terrible numbers, aren't they? Yes, they are awful numbers, Peter. But should we be surprised? I mean, everything the government's touched, whether it be on quarantine or vaccination, has been something just short of a disaster. And, of course, I saw the official explaining this away by saying we decided that people in aged care facilities should be the first priority, but they're not getting the, the, they're not getting the rate of vaccination any of us hoped and anticipated. I have a mother-in-law in a facility who hasn't been vaccinated so you know that's no excuse whatsoever we haven't we haven't established enough vaccine sources and we haven't put the resources to this thing that is necessary to get us on track for broad-scale vaccination in quick time we are well behind the rest of the world and many people will be looking at this tonight and saying really people with disability you could not have at least given them priority it's just crazy yeah yeah, they're our most vulnerable. I will put you up, though. I don't think the federal government's done anything poor in terms of quarantine. I think it's been the state governments and the quarantine debacles we've had there. But, Campbell, I'll bring you in. No. All of this talk, business leaders and others wanting these borders open. We saw a poll yesterday, 73% of Australians saying, keep them shut until we're all vaccinated. PM today was offering a bit of a... A ray of hope on domestic travel saying that, you know, if you're vaccinated, you should be able to get through any snap border closures. That'll all come down, of course, to these premiers. It's hard to see the PM wanting to open it up. Pressure from premiers, though, to get the country moving, get the door open. I've got to ask you, Campbell, you've, you've run a state. I don't understand if our most vulnerable are our older Australians, why on earth, and there's vaccine hesitancy, which we know, why on earth aren't we saying to them, you know what, you have a choice, AZ or Pfizer, just get them vaccinated. The young people who haven't got any of the complications, we've got more Pfizer coming in October, surely they can wait, Campbell. Jake, Peter, there's a huge amount in what you just put to me. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think a choice would be great, but obviously the, the challenge there, I, I think, would be that, that they don't have sufficient stocks. I mean... People are uh, hanging back. There's no doubt out about it now. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm getting my AstraZeneca uh, vaccination this time next week. So I'll be happy to report back. Um, and my wife's already had hers because she's a registered nurse. Um, but we need to encourage people to get the shot, period. And I'm afraid over the last sort of um, probably six or seven weeks, the signals have been awfully mixed. I mean, there is... Well, until the PM started to talk the way that you just said, which was very heartening, what was the incentive? Why go and get a shot where I do know people who've been a bit ill afterwards, but why get a shot if you're still going to be required to quarantine for 14 days? Uh, that then means people are really thinking long and hard about whether they'll do a business trip or do a holiday. Will, will there be a case? Will mm. the, the Premier of South Australia shut things down? 
they have to actually do what the PM said. That is very, very sensible. As to the international border, look, the PM's always been playing this according to, you know, the sentiment out there. He was dead right that there is no appetite to do that. But, again, the business leaders who are out there now talking about the need to open up, well, they're right to get the debate going because we cannot continue in the long term like this. We have to get, you know... You know, tourism, international education, the ability to see loved ones, all that going again. And we've got to get vaccinated, obviously, to facilitate that. So there's really got to be a push on. Yeah, I have to say again, though, if, if they're starting to vac vaccinate those under the age of 50 and we've got all of these vulnerable older people, aged care recipients, people with a disability, I think it just doesn't make sense uh, to leave them without any choice. I think a choice in vaccine is incredibly important to getting those numbers up in terms of vaccinations. Let's go to the US, Joel. This pipeline issue in the US where the energy sector has been crippled on the East Coast, reports are that there was a ransom paid by the owners of the pipeline to a Russian crime group. Now, this, I think, is extraordinary because... It goes against the grain, likely to incentivise more of these sorts of attacks. An Australian bloke, Shane Bell, who's a partner in a restructuring firm, McGrath Nickel, he says that the corporates in Australia need to actively consider also paying ransoms if there are cyber attacks. Is, isn't this just going to grow the market in extortion? Surely there's a better way. Yeah, I was surprised by those comments, Peter. I look forward to speaking with a few CEOs uh, later this week to see what they are thinking and what sort of conversation they are having with their boards and through them, their shareholders. I mean, at the national security level, uh, most countries, Western countries, have a very deliberate policy, never pay a ransom, because, as you said, you're only going to encourage, encourage more acts of kidnap. So I would have thought that he fought position here for business too would be never to pay these uh, ransoms, but these, these threats can wreak havoc uh, on these companies too. And I think there'll be a role for government uh, here. I mean, the extreme role would be to outlaw the paying uh, of a ransom. I don't think that will happen, nor do I necessarily think it should happen. But I think that the national security agencies within government will have a key role to play in discussion with these companies to determine what is the best strategy going forward. It's a, it's a, it's a very complex one. Right, Cam, I'm going to pick your brains as a local man on the ground in Queensland because the next federal election will be won or lost in your home state. Anthony Albanese has been up there in this post-budget runaround targeting Flynn and Leichhardt, two key seats. Flynn, of course, has got a retiring member. He's taken a whack at the federal government for knocking back a request for funding for North Queensland wind farm. Lots of high vis, all of those sorts of pictures you'd expect on this side of the campaign trail. You're still a bit weak on going to a coal mine, I might add. How's it playing out in Queensland? Well, you'd get, uh, the, the, get the sense that the election campaign has well and truly started, Peter, um, what with uh, these visits and uh, uh, the media and the promises and, and also advertising on TV that we're seeing. Um, I, think that, I think that Anthony Albanese really needs to um, put a real line in the sand that he absolutely supports coal if he's to be successful, particularly in regional Queensland. And it does look a bit iffy at this stage... I mean, a wind farm, um, 250 jobs, only during construction. How many, how many during, during the operation of 25 years? Not so many, I would venture to suggest. You know, so I, he really does have an opportunity, though, if he's, if he's got the guts to actually go and confront the issue and say, right, well, what we did in the last few years was wrong, we're totally behind coal, well, then I think he, he, um, he could get somewhere. But at the moment, it's a very sort of two-bob-each-way sort of... Uh, sense that I'm getting out of it. I know it's a, it's a state by-election, Joel Fitzgibbon, but you're a very big presence in Hunter. You're seen as someone who's holding up the end of fossil fuels and coal and being supportive of the workers. Oh, I'm interested, a very tight contest for the weekend between the Nationals candidate and your candidate, Jeff Drayton. It's neck and neck. If they get over the line, is it more Joel Fitzgibbon's influence than Jodie McKay and will it make her job safe? Oh, well, certainly, you know, Labor's made its position on coal mining very clear right throughout the campaign. We selected a very good candidate who is not only a coal miner, but a coal mining union official and well-known uh, within the coal mining industry. And Jodie McKay has been very consistent 
uh, in her message, and that is that she solidly supports the coal mining industry and is promising to, to send more coal royalties back to the region. You can only get royalties if you've got ongoing coal mining. So she's been very strong, and, and I'm very pleased about that. that. I hope this is a real turning point uh, for the Labor Party at our recent national conference, of course. Uh, we wrote into the yeah. Constitution support for both the coal and oil and, and gas sectors. So I think we've been very clear about that and there should be no longer any doubt about our support for coal mining. Can I just say on the knife, um, Keith, yeah, Keith used his veto powers, but we all have to be consistent here. If we're going to say the Minister should not intervene and we follow the independent board, we should do that on every occasion. And we should do that, Peter, if they seek to, for example, invest in infrastructure around the Bidaloo Basin gas project. All right, we'll stay there and keep on that as well. We'll see what happens with the Joni McKay. If they lose, she out. That'll be the question. Campbell Newman, Joel Fitzgibbon, thank you for your time. A great pleasure. Peter, Joel. All right, some very controversial comments overnight from the UK. Richard Dawkins, I want to bring those to you after the break. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Before we go, Richard Dawkins, no stranger to controversy, the evolutionary biologist and best-selling author, has previously found himself in hot water for repeatedly defending so-called mild pedophilia and labelling religion as dopey, unsubstantiated superstition. But now he's stooped to a new low. Appearing on Irish radio, Dawkins doubled down on past remarks about aborting disabled children, arguing it's wise and sensible to abort any child with a serious disability. He even went so far as to say parents could increase the amount of happiness in the world by having another child instead after aborting a disabled baby. It's blood-curdling brutality of the highest order. And I wanted to draw his attention, your attention to what he has said because there's a much-loved headline act in certain sections of the media, including the ABC, and I didn't see much condemnation of his statements today. Sadly, I doubt we will. Thank you for your company tonight. As always, love to have you with me every night at six. Andrew Bolt's up next, but I'll be back here tomorrow night at six. Hi, it's Gary Jubilant here. Do you want a real and raw look inside the world of crime? Well, then check out my podcast, I Catch Killers, where I interview people from all sides of the law. I draw my firearm and... I went into fight mode. I wanted to find and confront this gunman. I'm, I'm not getting verbal, am I? <laughs> I shouldn't have trusted you. See, I, I'm, I'm trying to open my mind up to uh, defence I know, it's just begging to be said. Yeah. Fair call, fair call. We have amazing guests every week. Search for iCatch Killers wherever you get your podcasts.